and welcome to our Truly Scrumptious podcast, where we talk food festivals, festival food, foodie friends and friends of the festival. In each episode, we will chat to some of our many friends, our celebrity chefs and bakers, food producers, festival team and other people involved in the festival world. We'll even hear some backstage gossip. It's a huge world. It's a hard-working one and great fun too, although a tad stressful at times. My name is Lottie Duncan, and I'm a food presenter, writer, and eater. We want to bring our food festivals to your door, your ears, your living room, and most definitely your kitchen. So draw up your chair, pour yourself something scrumptious, take the weight off your slingbacks, and join us within the world of food, festivals, and foodie types. Welcome to another of our special summer podcasts. A month or so ago, I spoke with the utterly delightful Dr Neil Buttery when his brand new book was launched. I happened upon Neil, as you do, when scrolling through Instagram and I saw that he had written a book about one of my all-time culinary heroines. Now, you might be thinking, Mary Berry, and yes, I love Mary, have worked with Mary and I think she's completely fabulous, but it's not her. Neither is it Delia or... Tum tum tum, Nigella. This lady lived about 300 years ago in Manchester. She was forthright, intelligent, canny, and with a fabulous business head, at a time when women weren't allowed opinion or property. So, make a cup of tea, get comfy, and slice some of your favourite cake. Settle down in your best chair, and let me introduce you to Elizabeth Raffold and her biographer, the fabulous Neil Buttery. I am thrilled to be chatting to Dr. Neil Buttery today. Um, I have your book. Well, I'm, I'm going to go right right from the beginning. I love food history. I love social history um, of Britain. And I was scrolling through various amazing podcasts and blogs and I came across your name and then, and I've known about you for a little while. And then I saw your podcast. I started listening. And I thought, oh, he's fantastic. And then I saw that you'd written this book on Miss on Elizabeth Raffold um, called Before Mrs. Beaton. And Elizabeth Raffold is this incredible 18th century cook who I've been fascinated about for years. So I then texted you or messaged you, didn't I? And I said, please come on, please come mm-hmm. on the podcast so I can chat to you. So you're actually, you're you're an academic, you're, doc, you're Dr. Neil Buttery, you are also a chef and restaurateur as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you've been fascinated as well about the history of British food for a very long time. I have, yeah. I've been studying it, writing about it in some way or form for about 15 years. It wasn't my original plan as a career. <laughs> That's how it's ended up. <laughs> And very early on in that career, in inverted commas, um, Elizabeth Raffle popped up. She popped up quite early. And I've been fascinated with her ever since in so many different ways. I mean, we'll probably talk about a lot of those ways. But, I mean, in brief, just how she managed to get so much done. I know, in 47 <laughs> years. Overachiever or what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, just, she just never stopped. She was, I mean, she was a true entrepreneur, wasn't she? But... You know, in her fairly short life that we would think nowadays, and probably fair, you know, it wasn't that short in those days, she packed so much in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, she died. So she dies. Sorry if that's a spoiler. <laughs> she, dies at, she dies at 47. I'm 46 next. 
And I just think, how how did she do all the things that she did? Because she is best known, I suppose. If you do know who she is, I mean, she's been kind of forgotten. But if you do know her, it's because of her book, The Experienced English Housekeeper. And when I first started researching the book, I thought the book would be about her cookery book. But there was just so much other stuff going on that actually the cookery book just had to become a chapter. Yes, it literally <laughs> is. There's so it? much other stuff to talk about yeah. too, which informs the book. You know, so it all kind of links in, I suppose. But yeah, there was just so much to say about her. And what I love about it is, you know, you, you've got this incredible lady um, who is, you know, a very strong woman and, and a great businesswoman in a time where women actually weren't allowed to own businesses or own property, were they? I mean, it was a, it was a fairly awful time for them to do that. But she was an incredibly strong woman. Mm. She overtook, she overcame all of that. But she started out as a servant um, yeah. in service in Arley Hall for Betty Warburton, Lady Betty. Um, lovely lady. Mm-hmm. She sounds really lovely. Lady Betty just she sounds does sound lovely. Nice. Yeah, just. And so <laughs> she she went from there, but she always kind of remembered that path. And I think, and she never really moved up through society, although she was very flamboyant and when she was very wealthy. But she was always still very much adhered to her her servant roots. Yeah, I think she was proud of them, very much. You know, she was an upper servant, so I guess you know within the realms of you know the servant class, you know she was the upper crust within that. <laughs> within that realm and she really used it to her advantage because she told people that she was a housekeeper and a housekeeper then meant running a house rather than just looking after a you know a small a small home that the housewife would be the housekeeper in that context I suppose but yeah she used it she really used it to her advantage so that people would trust her to prove that she had experience and the recipes that she'd written down actually worked and they do work Mm, this yeah. will work. Yeah, because you've actually, it's at the back of your book, we'll come on to, you actually, um, you know, you've talked about how many that you've made and I love the fact that you've talked about how to um, read the recipes slightly differently as well because of the way the ingredients were then and measurements and, and they are now. Mm. They're very different. So she was a servant um, at Ali Hall and she took the decision after she met and fell in love with a gallant gardener, John Raffold. The handsome <laughs> John Raffold. Yes, caught her eye across the... Uh, Across the peonies, probably. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everything else in the kitchen garden. And actually, I love the way you talked about the kitchen garden as well. And, and going on, and you were talking about how, um, so, you know, how being a servant has changed as well. I mean, all of this is in your book. And this is what I love about it. You've made it, you've put everything in context. You've made it very easy to read, but also very interesting. So just surrounding her time in Arley Hall, you talk about how it changed to be in service as well during that mm-hmm. time. How it went from the medieval time when you all lived together and then into the way mm-hmm. it was for her so she met the handsome john and what happened next well they moved to manchester fennel street in the center of manchester the town it's not yet a city um yes they married so john raffold interestingly he was extremely talented one of the most talented young gardeners in the country and he'd given up his own inheritance to the family business, because he was the eldest son, to pursue his dream, to go off to Arley Hall. But uh, he only had begun maybe six months before Elizabeth had, uh, and they, Elizabeth was only there for three years, so neither of, neither of them were there for a very long time. But yes, she knew, she knew his family were there with these huge market gardens in Manchester. Actually, they were just over the river in Salford. 
and she had access to all of this. I do wonder, I, I kind of mentioned this later on in the book, so I'm not going to try and get ahead of myself, but I do wonder what that conversation was between John and Elizabeth, because that's quite a thing. Giving up your inheritance to pursue your career in, you know, being a nurseryman, seedsman and head gardener, to go back on that, move back to where your brothers live, the ones that you've just given, <laughs> which should be yours. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's a strange thing. It's something I've never quite got my head around. What, what on earth could have happened between the two of them? What discussion came up that convinced him to go back to Manchester or back to that area of England? Mm. It's it a funny be, one. Yeah, it must be a bit and odd. The, mm, and it's one of the things that I really like about it because I couldn't believe how much we do know about her, but there's so much tantalizing stuff that we don't know as well which for me always keeps things interesting i don't want to know everything i want a little bit of um you know i just want some question marks hanging in the air because it makes it just a bit more of a mystery and perhaps a little bit more romantic too well do you think perhaps take stripping the romantic side away do you think she was perhaps a little canny and she saw what he could do and the family that he's attached to and then she could kind of see a future where she could take advantage of that not in a bad way but almost you know we've got the family ties and they've got all of this beautiful produce that if I if we go back to Manchester and I open up what I would like to do in Manchester which she did achieve do you think you know she's got all that amazing stuff at her you know fingertips yeah and she knew too that Manchester was growing at a rapid rate there were lots of people getting well, comfortable, and <laughs> lots of people who were getting rich too. She knew people who were now had just become middle class. <laughs> they had to have a servant or two. There were servants moving into Manchester, as well as all the other big towns and cities. And there was some not particularly good uh, food establishments. So she saw, hang on a minute, I can jump on this. So not only is my brother in the, fruit, in the fruit and veg game, I'm an amazing cook. And I've invented mm. these amazing foods, and, she, and it's really posh food she was making at Arley, Arley Hall. It was a really big um, stately home, still is a nice big stately home. Um, so she thought, right, well, somebody is going to do this, so I need to get in there first. She's an inventor of, of few things. What she's really good at, what she's really canny at, is spotting a gap or a zeitgeist that's just around the corner. It's like, she, it's like she could see into the future slightly more than everybody else. She's always one step ahead of what the trend was going to be at the time. Yeah, clever lady, clever lady. And so, and she saw that. And so when she moved to Fennel Street and started building the business, um, she also saw the fact that, I mean, it may, you suggested perhaps it's the fact that she was sending all her servants around with these amazing, delicious food and people were realising they didn't have very good service, they didn't have enough of them, they didn't have to get hold of them. So she obviously started to register, she saw, as you said, she saw a gap in the market, thought, right, let's start up a register for servants. Let me start yeah. placing them. Yeah, it's funny because the way really you can trace what Elizabeth's doing through her life in Manchester is by looking in newspapers, <laughs> the Manchester Mercury. And uh, one of her, her first adverts... It's like she's appeared fully formed. So it's another little gap. It's like, well, what happened? How did she get there? How did she create this place? But she rented, or sorry, well, I'm assuming rented premises rather than bought premises on Fennel Street in Manchester, near the cathedral, very near the river. People are familiar with Manchester City Centre. 
And she immediately has her registry office setting up and set up, which is basically a um, a kind of what could you call it? A employment agency, like you know that we have now. So it was the first ever employment agency to be opened up in in Manchester. And then she had her shop selling a lot of the fine foods that she was making at Alley Hall. And she had her um, service doing catering for the kind of well-to-do in Manchester too. So she's immediately set up these businesses, which first of all are successful, but it also means very quickly she's the best connected person in Manchester. Yeah. Yeah, that's quite incredible. And, and you know, I don't think, you know, I used to have a catering company back in the day and I thought it was something which was fairly 20th century. But mm. I didn't realise they had catering companies in those days as well, you know, doing exactly what we're doing now, which is taking amazing food to somebody's house, you know, laying it all out, walking away and just say, well, you know, this is mm. almost like this is what my servants have done. <laughs> Well, almost, yeah. you know, but it, yeah, it, sometimes it was just sometimes it was just filling in a gap. So maybe there weren't enough staff to kind of have the really nice posh dessert or something. It just wasn't enough time. So they bought it in. Sometimes she was doing the full, you know, three courses when each course is made up of sometimes a dozen or, or more mm -hmm. or more different dishes. <laughs> I know that's incredible. So yeah, she, yeah, and she saw what the servants were like, I assuming, I'm assuming when she was doing that, so she got, okay, register office, that's the, that's the thing to start up. And I, and I mean, she must have had a good idea of what Manchester was like before she went there. So she must have been visiting, but again, there's just nothing in the records. It's just a little blip. It's just, she appears at Arley Hall, and she appears in Manchester fully formed, doing these amazing things. Yeah, so something something made her think, as you say. That conversation would have been very interesting about, you know, right, okay. let Because they wanted to get married, and obviously servants, they had to leave anyway if they got married, didn't they, at that time. So mm -hmm. it, was, it, was, it was inevitable they would have to move away together. But the plans they must have made together to do that, I think, are quite incredible. But then I also think in a little way, with... Uh, John and you look at that late in his life I I just wonder and you touch on this as well whether it was he kind of just went along with it a bit because his he didn't quite fulfill his dream entirely did he no he didn't and you have to go away just thinking uh, Elizabeth must have been very I don't know charismatic um sure-headed as well as sure-footed mm. and she must have just been a create this argument that he couldn't find a hole in. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, what, what, the few people that try to um, guess about what their relationship's like, because I think he's seven years older than her. So people, and she was 25, so I guess that makes him 32. She was 25 when she first started working at all at, all, at Ali. And yeah, people say things like, oh, she must have been besotted by this older, handsome, charismatic gentleman. But going by what John's behaviour was like towards the end of Elizabeth's life, I think it was the other way around. Yeah, no, I agree I with you. I think she's the charismatic one. Yeah. And I think he is the one who fell for her. Mm. And I think there was some degree of him basically going, I'll do whatever you want. <laughs> I'm completely besotted with you. Yeah, yeah. You I'll say Manchester. Yeah, I'm off. Yeah, exactly. Mm. No, I think you're right. 
so look here so when they're in manchester and fennel street um and obviously she's taking advantage of all these different things that were happening they got they sort of outgrew the premises and they ended up at marketplace so they had a, a bigger expansion of the business and that also entailed a finishing school as well so she obviously saw that <laughs> young ladies were needing to be sort of finished really in families or offered if they were going to go off and run their own houses they would have to have some idea of how to run the house so she was offering that and funnily enough that's what i did in 1984 oh, okay. i went to winkfield place and in those days it wasn't really so much a finishing school but it was very much this is how we're going to teach her to be a good wife um, mm -hmm. So they marched us off to Sanders Military Academy every Wednesday to learn how to Scottish dance too, but that's another story. Um, but yes, yeah, so, so it's, uh, it's you know, so she was again seeing something else that she could um, get her little fingers into, another business. Indeed. And, uh, and obviously, as well as that, they were expanding um, hugely. Yeah, the shop's bigger, bigger and better with the more lines. Her nephews, something else which isn't quite explained, her nephew somehow uh, the perfumer uh, I can never say that word to George the third yeah yeah mad isn't <laughs> Not explained. it you can't find any links just there there it is so it means she's also got a new line of really posh toiletries gosh things what sound like bath bombs but they can't be bath bombs but things that you plop in your bath and yeah it's scented with oils and things and you know various powders for your wigs <laughs> yeah, so she's doing that nice as well. many things. Yeah. I mean, I think this, this, she was uh, six years she was on Marketplace, and it's where really all the exciting stuff really happened. Because she didn't give up any of her previous ones, so she's still doing the register office. She's still doing the catering school, so now she's doing <laughs> this <laughs> bigger shop yeah. and uh, a school for younger ladies. Mm. She saves the Manchester Mercury, the local paper, from going under. Giving it Dodge. I mean, she needed that paper to carry on. I mean, it, it sounds like a, this really altruistic act, but, you know, all her adverts were going in there. Mm. It's a secret to her success. I think she knew that she had to help it out. Um, also, she writes the not one, but two editions. <laughs> of her book. Of the experienced English housekeeper. Yeah, the first one's uh, 1769. God, that's amazing. What's really interesting, um, when you were talking about the cookery books now, and I want to draw in a little bit with Hannah Glass and Eliza Acton, mm -hmm. um, two other fantastic uh, female cookery writers. Um, there's, there was just a wonderful line from Samuel Johnson, who is the, the big writer of the time. And I remember I've actually repeated this particular line as well. That, um, and I'm just trying to remember it, but I think it's something to do with women can spin very well, but I'm not sure they can write a book of cookery. Yeah, I think that's almost dead on, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's what they're up against all the time. But also, they're up against the French in this period of time as well. And all the French, you know, chefs popping over because their uh, bosses are having their heads cut off in the in the revenue. So they're all coming over as well, aren't they? And it's all becoming very fashionable to have these French chefs. But Hannah Glass had a bit of a thing to say about that as well, didn't she? She said that if you want the food yes. to look good, I suppose you get a French cook. I mean, I'm just kind of Some summarizing. French booby, French she says. booby, that's right. French booby. Classic. French booby. French booby. <laughs> but if you want it to actually taste good, you get an English cook. I mean, that's really what she was saying, wasn't it? It's, you know, the French are all sort of foo-foo, frou-frou, and uh, 
you know, fanning around with how it looks, but actually you want good English cooking. That's what you really want. Yeah, I mean, it's another hangover, I think, from uh, royal court cookery. You know, all this French stuff. French stuff is the best because it was over the top. There was so much time required, so so much ingredients and fuel and really a waste of ingredients. This is the time where you, people are boiling down whole oxes <laughs> just to get a bit of demi-glass. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah, it was... It was it was completely ridiculous. And a lot of people, I suppose, I suppose the older generation at the time, were just wishing they could have the old, nice, plain but simple cookery of old England. I mean, they've got rose-tinted glasses on to some degree, I suppose. But I think it is true. Uh, you know, I've cooked a lot of British food now. And the simplest stuff is the best. Where you, you take care, you buy good ingredients, you take care over them. And that's it. Mm. But it requires a huge amount of skill. Yeah. You know, those so-called simple dishes belie the amount of skill and intuition that the person needs, mm. you know, uh, preparing those foods and get them out there and get them get them successfully done. Yeah, you know, it's, it's tricky. It's stripping away all the nonsense and you're just left with this beautiful, you know, product, allowing that product to shine. I think we're doing that a little bit more now again, aren't we? After the years of nouveau cuisine, all the nonsense in the 80s, where, you know, the funny little bits in the middle. And I'm still not that keen now on the on the foams. It looked like cuckoo spit on the edge of your plate, oh, you know. Don't I... get me started on foams. No, <laughs> just think, right. We go in and out, I think. You know, we're a country, we're, you know, we're, we've always had waves of immigration. We've also, we're also an ex-empire. So we're used to exciting foods coming into the country in some way or form. And I think we just waver between new and exciting foods. What was it, maybe about 10, 15 years ago? It was all American food. It was all pulled, everything was pulled flipping pork. And cheese, yeah. It was. And now it's moved because I think people are worried that we're losing our heritage mm. a bit. So suddenly the focus goes a little bit more internal mm. and we rediscover our own food. Sometimes with a twist. You know, we, what we do is we learn from these other countries' ingredients and techniques and we integrate them in. And that's what Elizabeth was doing. She was integrating some of the French stuff that was worthy. Yes. Yeah. And she wasn't completely, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. She would say, no, there are bits that are really useful, so I'll use them and get rid of the nonsense. Yeah, she cherry picked. Just, just needed somebody to say, you know, who isn't being followed by fashion, just to do what everybody else is doing, to go, no, these few things are good, these things are not, so let's take those and make them our own or integrate them into our, our own kind of cooking. And that's the way to please everybody because there's something there for everyone then too, so it was a bit more inclusive. Yeah, no, and I think it's. I think you're absolutely right, and I think nowadays as well we are looking, as you say, we're looking inward a bit more inward, and because we've actually got wonderful produce in this country, indigenous as well, a lot, most of it bought in even from the Roman times. But mm -hmm. I think we're very lucky because we have such a temperate climate and we can grow so much, um, and I think we are, you know, we do have some wonderful things. But I think we lose our way. We're very easily influenced as an island. Um, so I think we do lose our way sometimes in what we produce, thinking that that's great. But actually, we need to draw back to when food was slightly plainer, probably better for us. Um, I'm a, mm. I, I don't know if this is true, but my kind of belief is that we are all our sort of indigenous grains that we've had 
for many many years you know the spelts of the old all the old grains rye sure. barley they're much better for our system if you are you know basically british when we are obviously mm-hmm. a mix of everything because that's the way we've eaten for thousands of years but when you start getting all the new foods over i think that's the problem that causes us all our um our various issues and our allergies is probably because our bodies haven't quite caught up with the way we've been mm-hmm. eating yes i mean everything's processed even then i mean we kind of think of processed food as sausages and hamburgers and bacon and things like that i suppose but um everything's processed yeah you know cooking is a process yeah exactly fermenting is a process um and yeah cooking and fermenting we've definitely adapted to as a species Mm. just talk about from a kind of evolution point of view yeah but all the other stuff we haven't adapted to yet and it's making us fat it's making us flabby and unhealthy and it's creating all sorts of um different maladies and things like that and it was doing that in the 18th century you know huge amount of calories and rich food everyone had gout everyone had piles you know (laughs) (laughs) terrible skin yeah mm, so today's diabetes is kind of the the big one for us that now but then gout gout and piles scurvy nice (laughs) Mm. They're eating loads of food, but not necessarily eating the right food. So they're all very fat, but um, still still malnourished. Yeah, yeah. Very odd. It is odd. But a lot of the scurvy, I suppose, was because a lot of people weren't living in the countryside so much, were they either? They're more urban and there was less nutrition and they weren't eating more varied diets. They probably would in the country through the industrial revolution. I mean, veg was being served at these dishes. It's not like medieval times when there was nothing. Yeah. (laughs) But usually there's garnishes to look nice. Uh, it wasn't viewed as very masculine to eat vegetables. It wasn't viewed as being middle or upper class. It was considered, you know, a poor person's thing, you know, the vegetables. So, yeah, you know, it didn't have everything going for it at the time, so it was a bit eschewed. Yeah. But people were just pre-scurbutic, I think the word is, you know, so it was lots of bleeding gums and things like that. It wasn't full, full-on full scurvy. They were just, just having enough yeah. so they didn't keel over. But not, quite. but not quite enough to have good health. God, it's really, and they didn't, they hardly washed as well. It's all really, it's not, you know, we look back on those times, the sort of Jane Austen times, you think it's all very beautiful and lovely, but it, I think it was obviously, they were a dodgy time, dodgy areas of it, weren't they really? So, um, so she's doing very well, Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have to say, I've read your book cover to cover and I, I, I absolutely blooming loved it. I really did, oh, genuinely. I thought it was just so interesting. I read it in about two days. Um, and I've been very busy as well, so it's it's amazing that I actually had the time oh, to thanks. sit down. It was just so lovely to read. I couldn't put it down. Um, but so so she had all these plates spinning, mm-hmm. everything going on in uh, Market Street, and then she thinks, I tell you what, I tell you what, John, should we just add to it all? Let's just forget Market Street. Let's let's go and buy ourselves a tavern, a high end yeah. tavern, uh, where we can just have everything all in one place. Um, and, you know, get very rich. So that's what they did. Yeah, they basically dismantle everything. So you see adverts in the Manchester Mercury saying, we're selling all our food and all our stuff. There's a notice saying that some person, some random person, Mr Cooper, is he's starting up the registry office, he's taken that and off he goes. At the end, they put all their eggs in one basket to the King's Head Tavern, in Salford, which is just, I mean, it's not very far away. It's about a five minute walk 
third on the walk. <laughs> uh, five minute march from our old premises to a new. So it, it's it's a different town, but yeah. it's the same area really. Yeah, and it was it was huge. It was a hotel. It was a very upmarket tavern. It had extensive extensive uh, stables. It might have even had a small shop. Not sure about that one. Yeah. But yeah, it, it was a it was a complex. Gosh. And that, so they decided to take this over and they did that with a plum, didn't they? I mean, they, it was the slightly start, it was the start of the downfall for John, but it was an incredible place, you know, and you see a very... It was an incredible place, yes. It's funny, the adverts uh, in the newspaper changed because there used to be Ruff, uh, Mrs. Raffold putting her notices in and then everything's in the name of John Raffold. She's dis- she disappears. Why? It becomes John. Why do you think because this is- well, because he's a man, mm. and it was quite—it wasn't just owning a shop, which was considered maybe a woman's, uh, very much a woman's place. That's mm. fine socially, mm. but this was something altogether different, and therefore a man had to be at the helm. Oh, of right. course, of course, yes, of course. <laughs> uh, and he was, as we said, charismatic, handsome. So he was front of house. He was maitre d essentially, while she was very. Uh, hard working at the back, getting all the food ready. She, she had a little sanctum made at the back, which was, apparently sounds really cute, like an office, with, but with a set of walls. There were uh, windows, and she sat there, wrote more editions of her books and more editions of her um, directory. We didn't mention the directory that she did, the A to Z directory. Of course, she did that as well. Yes, I forgot about that. <laughs> the A to Z directory. Three editions of that. Yeah, yeah. Trade directory advantage. <laughs> she did that as well. Just saying, yeah. <laughs> Drop that in there. <laughs> Very, there's 20,000 people at the time living there. She just did a little A to Z. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, it's nuts, isn't it? Um, yeah, and yeah, things did start to go wrong there. It was such a massive thing. They were really uh, catering for the well-to-do, you know, nobility, gentry, as well as kind of the well-off mm. um, merchants, Taking foreign visitors there. She could speak French because Elizabeth, of course. Of course, she, could. Of course, of course she, she, could. she was bilingual, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was a good place to go because, you know, she could actually go in and have a conversation with some of the people who were coming to visit those different merchants, which you couldn't do anywhere else, you know. So it was very useful having her there for everyone. So it just did, she just did fantastically. And she sold the copyright to her book at the third edition for £1,800, ah, which made her very rich. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't sound like a huge amount now, but bearing in mind her annual salary as a housekeeper was £16. Mm. Yes. You know. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> that's a huge really amount. Really good. Of, yeah, that's yeah. a huge amount of money, isn't it? Mm. And she's the first woman to do that in Britain, possibly the world at that point. Usually what happened, there weren't very many women in publishing at the time, but usually the publisher would say, well, we're just going to buy the copyright immediately. Here's a few quid. And then quite often that book would do very, very well. <laughs> and the poor old woman who wrote it, yeah. you know, didn't see any of the money. Yeah. Whereas Elizabeth was like, I'm not having any of that. I'm going to wait. Yeah. <laughs> so she had Probably complete because- control. Yeah, she went complete control. She'd seen that it happened to other women. Mm. So she bided the time. Yeah. She was and a, absolutely cashed in. 
She was ahead of her time, really, wasn't she? In so many ways. She was. She was. And I think somebody doing that, the green lights went on for all sorts of different types of women around the country. Mm. So you got a whole slew of um, cookery books or self-help books. But I think also, in the case of Eliza Acton, for example, you know, she wanted to be a poet originally, yeah, I believe. And she brought a book of poetry in because poetry do, was doing quite well. Because that's another area that women are fine to publish in, poetry. Yes, poetry, we can do right. that. Little ladies yeah, at home like can do that. that. Yeah. Or books on cooking tapestry. And poetry. <laughs> yeah, cooking poetry and books on tapestry. <laughs> yeah. That's all they're allowed um, to do. It wasn't just uh, in a world of writing about cookery that Elizabeth opened the doors to, I think, for women. I think it was any kind of writing at all. You know, only just before her, George Eliot, you know, a woman having a, have a pen name is allowed to get it's anything a man, published. Yeah. That was serious literature. Yeah. Uh, she, I think, meant that everyone, whether it's in kitchens or in libraries, because a lot of these well-to-do houses, it might be the lady of the house with a copy of her book that was in the library, just the on those spines of books, it became familiar to see women on these books. And I think, I think it's really important, you know, that you know if that hadn't happened, if there hadn't been, I'm sure an Elizabeth might have come on again that was going to put a foot down and not sell out immediately. But I think by that one one simple act, that was well known at the time, really changed things. I think for for women and uh, getting their work published beyond yeah. what was just, you know, in, in their realm, even though Elizabeth herself stayed within those realms. Yes. But did it in such a, such a fantastically um, cocky way. Yeah. But in a good way, I mean. Yeah. No, I think, I I think, think it's fantastic. I mean, I don't think she was like a battle axe or anything like that. You know, I think it could be, I think that could be quite easy just to simply label her as, oh, she was a battle axe. Yeah. Like, mm, well, no, there's, come on, there's more to her going on, going on than that. Yeah, that's often the case, though, for women who um, are a little bit, you know, feisty. They're told they're mm-hmm. strident or they're, you know, they're not allowed, to, women aren't allowed to be ambitious, they're aggressive. You know, it's a, it's a even then, even now, that's that's how it mm-hmm. is attributed, isn't it, really? That's, yeah, that's absolutely. That's a bit of a personality, um, which is a little yeah, unfair. I think she got the ball rolling, really. She, I don't think she knew it at the time, of course, but I think she did. Yeah, no, definitely. I think you're absolutely right. I think she just sort of... She just carried on with her life and she did things her way. And we always have to give a little, sort of, we have to, to give them a title or a certain way that they are. But I just think she just decided, I want to work hard. I want to do all these things. I have great ambition for my life. I'm also going to have six children at the same time, over the yeah, period of time. Through this whole time, she's yeah. either pregnant or, or miscarrying, unfortunately, yeah, or is nursing or recovering. Yeah. pregnancy the whole time i mean it was reputed that she had 16 daughters it turns out she did not have 16 <laughs> daughters but she still was constantly yeah uh, pregnant or and, recovering and tired and probably vomiting at the same time and all the things that happen you know mm. and then obviously at that period of time i wonder if she was um did the one month lying in which most women were having to do weren't they after they had a baby they were always told to and i was really yes, well, you basically shut off for a month yeah yeah and told to, <laughs> to lay down and actually interestingly um, you mentioned that we, 
a little bit further in the book, you, you mentioned that she wrote a book on midwifery with an eminent surgeon at the time, which th- yeah. is kind of, did it happen or did it not happen? But they were talking about the lying-in period and this particular fever which hit women. I just wonder whether it was um, an embolism. Because if they're just lying down all the time, surely they're not moving and their blood clots, they might have had blood clots or something. That was my, my yeah, thought. Yeah, it's where we, we can't quite say what it was. Diseases change over the centuries. Diseases that existed then don't exist now. Um, and of course, there's lots of new diseases that we have that wasn't around in the 18th century. So it's hard to kind of say why. But I think you're right. I think if it's not blood clots, it's certainly um, not keeping the body you know, clean and aired. Mm-hmm. You know, every, having everything enclosed, you know, the, the windows were closed, curtains were closed. You, you weren't allowed to leave your bed. That is going to be an absolutely perfect condition for bacteria. Yes, exactly. It is. It's just so yes, between festering. that and, and the not moving around, like you say, mm. you know, causing blood clots. Yeah, it's just you just wonder where the logic was sometimes. Yes. Yeah. Well, you in the medieval times, you were locked away. After Tudor times, weren't you? Were locked away for for at least two months in confinement before you gave birth. Mm-hmm. Um, in the big houses, weren't you? If you're royalty, you were locked away and, and the room didn't have any windows open and the fires were stoking even in the middle of summer. It must have been absolutely horrible. Yeah, people thought bad things came in, you know, with, with the air through the windows. They yeah. really got the wrong end of the stick. They really did. Goodness me. <laughs> so going back to the lovely Elizabeth. So they're having a ball. They're doing really well in this pub. She's got, as I said, she's got kids. She's got businesses. What happened? Because there was a massive fall and decline here, wasn't there? And things yeah, changed really drastically. Quick. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a couple of business ventures go wrong. John tries to start up some kind of stable stroke horse stroke hearse business. And obviously, which all that kind of stuff is going to cost a lot of money. It goes wrong. It just doesn't work. So people assume Elizabeth had nothing to do with that one, seeing as everything she does, everything she touches turns to gold. Turns so to gold. Well, it must be John. Yes, got to be John him. John that one. <laughs> um, so that got rid of a lot of their cash flow, it seems. But worse, and the real problem really, was John had become an alcoholic, essentially, or was certainly misusing alcohol. One of the jobs that he had being in front of house was to drink with the other men. And they were hosting some pretty posh societies like the Beefsteak Club and all various different feasts. And you've got to match them drink for drink. So I think there was a lot of drinking. There was a lot of stress. I think a certain amount of sadness, stroke depression. You know, this stuff's all successful, but it's not where he wanted to be. Mm. Not that it's an excuse to... No, become an alcoholic no, and sure. drink all your wife's yeah. money away. But yeah. I'm just thinking of I'm just trying to think of the reasons why these things happen. And I think people have been very quick with John to say, oh, he just became a spendthrift. Mm. And he was a ruin of her. It's like, well, no, like Elizabeth, he's a three-dimensional <laughs> character person as well. Mm. So we need to try and think of reasons why that didn't work. He's not a bad person. You know, it's not that he hasn't done anything bad mm. previously. So you've got to assume it's you know something logical. That's maybe yeah. happened. That's that's what I think maybe happened. But yeah, it means he's drunk or hungover all the time. There's some big thefts that, you know, various criminals get away with because he's not on the ball. And it just starts to unravel. And before you know it, 
there's an advert in the Manchester Mercury saying we've we're bankrupt. God, all that, all that work. Yeah, and... all that stuff that like she's done, all those achievements. Yeah. Um, I think by then five editions of the cookbook, <laughs> two editions of the directory, all those different businesses, that massive windfall she got, just all just gone. gone. Just yeah. gone. It's so sad. It really is. I mean, how they must have felt about that. I'm just going back very much, very quickly to the drinking side. It was a very masculine thing, wasn't mm. it, to drink? So it was showing yeah, how. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's still, I mean, it still is. I mean, yeah, the English is. have always yeah. liked to drink. Yeah. That's just, there's something about Englishness mm. and drinking and yeah. binge drinking. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But then it really was considered. Yeah. You know, a, a, the masculine thing to do was mm. to drink a lot and to be a you know, take take the liquor and, you know, not become a complete drunk. And, and the upper classes could, and the middle classes could drink as much as they want and that was absolutely fine. But if you were poor and drunk, you were terrible. Oh, and, You know, yeah, that, oh. I, when I read that in your book, I just thought that just underlined, again, with that's not changed either, has it really? We, you know, that's still, no. people still think exactly the same thing. You're allowed to get completely sozzled if you've got loads of dosh. But if you don't have enough dosh, why are you spending your money on booze? Yeah, you know, exactly. Why are you not doing this? Why are you not doing that? And I'm going to you know, yeah. tell you what you're doing wrong in your life. So. Yeah, I mean, this is the time where there's that famous drawing by Hogarth, the Gin Lane mm. drawing. It crops up all the time. Um, it's a really busy drawing, lots of stuff going on, but it basically shows how the awful effects of gin. There's a, there's a woman in the foreground breastfeeding her child, but she's reaching out to get something, probably some gin, and, and he's dropping the baby, and the baby's falling to its death, yeah. and there's just people, you know, laying over. Drunk everywhere in the gin house, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, this is a time where people were thinking, you know, drinking and the, and the lower classes was just this horrible disaster, and this, um, you know, uh, this hell that had been, that spread through them. But it's fine if they did it. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. We can do what we want. It's terrible, really. Mm. It is atrocious. So, um, yeah, so the, the big fall for Elizabeth and what did they do? I mean, they've, they've literally lost everything. I'm sure they want to just go and disappear off somewhere quietly. Well, to... they do disappear, it seems, for about six months. Just yeah. can't, I just can't find any trace of them after, after that notice saying that they're bankrupt. But then they appear again in a coffee shop, a coffee house, should I say, um, at the dodgy end of the exchange square called the Shambles. Right, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, it's pretty dark, it's pretty dingy. Uh, there's probably some mm, dodgy dealings going on with the clientele. It's a coffee house that sells alcohol as well. So coffee houses often sell coffee in the day and switch to alcohol in the evening. Which also meant uh, John could carry on. Yes, <laughs> if you were away. in the background, yes. And she seems to have pretty much washed her hands of, of, of it. She's making a few soups to serve you know, to the customers, but beyond that, that's it. Mm. She's writing, she writes a third edition of a directory of Manchester and Salford. <laughs> of course she does. <laughs> she gets to seventh edition of book. Amazing. <laughs> and that's all in the background, but when it comes to actual um, getting out there and, and cooking, she's mm. kind of reduced really to selling strawberries from a stall at the, at the horse races. And a bit of coffee and tea and various little treats. So there's still quite well-to-do treats. So it's hopefully the posh end of the race is that she's there with her store. But nevertheless, I mean, it's, this is quite different to a great big tavern. Yeah. 
And do you think people... At a royalty visit. And do you think people treated her badly because of it? You know, oh, look at the big come down of the lady, the hoity-toity lady that rose. You know, was there a little bit of the tall poppy syndrome going on there? Or do you think people were kind to her because they knew I that think... she was so good at what she did? And... Hmm. That's a good question. Well, I think there's always going to be some element of that. But I think she seems like such a headstrong, proud person that I almost feel that she wouldn't have had shame about it. Things are only shameful when you feel shame. If mm. you don't feel shame about it, it just boings off you and then, no, then it just stops it dead. I've got a feeling, very much she's advertising. I mean, that's what she had to so that people knew. But I don't know. I just get the idea that she just thought, I'm just going to soldier on. Mm. I'm going to get doing the direct. There's quite a gap in these, I think, seven years gap between the previous directory so she's thinking what do I need to do to get back on my feet and I'm just going to do that mm. um, so I don't think she I don't think so I don't think she felt any shame about it and I don't think if there was comments from other people I think she just ignored them and didn't care yeah good Something for I her I wish I could do sometimes yeah <laughs> don't we all <laughs> don't we all no I think I mean she's a formidable creature she really is and I think um, much admired for me and um, and a real role model actually a real role model of what you know you get what you want through trying lots of different things being an entrepreneur but also just working hard is she had a, her work ethic was amazing sadly I think it's probably what killed her early because <laughs> they yeah you know 47 Absolutely. I think she was worn yeah. out wasn't she really I mean she must have been yeah um I think even if she had done all that hard work, having all those children would have worn her out. And even if she didn't have any children, the amount that she did would have worn her out. So mm. putting those two together, mm. and that's just going to equal a short lifespan. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah, it is. It's very sad, but she but she lives on hugely, and you've done um, you've done so much to just bring her back into our imaginations as well by writing this book. I think. I well, I mean, just... I like to think that she's still it. I mean, she's, we don't know it, but she still is. Her, the effect she's had on what we think of today as mm. traditional British food is, is, cannot be understated. Right. No. It cannot be understated. And I know people, the first people that people, the first person that people think of when they think about important writers who write about our traditional foods, the first person that people think of, or maybe it's the only name that some people know, and that's Mrs. Blooming Beaton. Yeah, Mrs. Beaton, who, you know, and I, I have a copy of her book. I think it was a 1920 edition, probably lots of things had happened to it, and it was full of odd recipes. <laughs> but um, and it was my, my grand, great-grandfather gave it to his wife on their wedding day, mm. to my dear little wife, it <laughs> says inside the book. It's very sweet. But, you know, the recipes in there, you know, I, <sighs> I think this, for me, is much more relevant. You know, everything Elizabeth Raffle did was much more relevant. I actually was asked years ago, it's very funny, because we were talking about how books change and how mm. after she died, how they kept adding recipes and changing things, you know, yeah, and all this. And, it, yeah. yeah, and having play for it. And I had, uh, someone came to me uh, years ago with a copy of a Mrs. Beaton and said, we'd like you to do this lemon meringue pie to Mrs. Beaton. And I said, I'm sure lemon meringue pie isn't in Mrs. Beaton. Well, certainly not that Americanized version of it, which is mm -hmm. probably something American. Um and it was just that they'd slipped it in and they call it Mrs. Beaton's cookery book. And they these people thought it was Mrs. Beaton's book, but it wasn't. Completely different, yeah. you know, and it's yeah. just using that name. And as you say, mm -hmm. that's the name that people associate for historical cooking. But there's so many better books out there. Well, I mean, the problem is, is 
I mean, in a way, I'm not knocking it. I use it all the time because it's a fantastic resource to get a snapshot yeah. you know, of, of cooking in, in Britain. Yeah. Most of the recipes do work. Mm. So from that point of view, I'm not knocking it. The problem is, is it was just so heavily marketed and yeah. so comprehensive. I mean, everything's in there. It's not just mm. cooking. It's embroidery. Mm. It's dealing with lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> And she wasn't a cook. Everything's in there. You didn't need yeah. another book. Yeah. You didn't need to have a variety of different voices. Yeah. Because it was all in there. And the reason that's also su- uh, such a secret to her, her success is those voices are all the women's voices from the previous century. Exactly. Because she just nicked them all. Yeah. I say she. She just she edited the book. And it was yeah. probably more her husband's, husband's work than it was Isabella yeah. Beaton's work. Yeah. She was just a, a fashion writer, essentially um, married to... James Beaton, who was a publisher, they did various journals. Yeah, mm. and she wrote the fashion column. Yeah, I know. Apparently she was okay at pastry. <laughs> Just okay. But it's that's true, it. it's true. She wasn't a cook, and that's what I find. But, the, but Elizabeth Raffold was, and proud of her roots, proud of her training, proud of everything that she did. She never, ever wavered from what her core belief was and her core skills mm. were. And that mm-hmm. is so obvious as well in her book. Um, an amazing lady. So everyone needs to go and buy this. Before Mrs. Beaton, Elizabeth, Ra- Elizabeth mm. Raffold, England's most influential housekeeper by Neil Buttery. And I'm going to put this picture out to everyone. I also must show to you that I do actually generally have the experience one, uh, the original. So I've got well, I've some props with me as well. So I've got that as well. Yes. Which is rare yeah. to find now. Yeah. I... And it was the first historical cookbook I ever bought. She's a, you know, Absolutely, she's the first person after yeah. reading about her in English Food by Jane Grigson. There. And, 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 um, also the one by Dorothy Hartley, Food of England. Great book. I love that book. That's a fantastic Have you got, book. I've got yeah, this one too. Eliza Acton. Oh, oh, yeah. That one. And I have First Catch Your Hair. Oh, yeah. Is that, that the um, Prospect Books version? Yeah, that's I've got a that. Prospect, Great. yeah. That's a Prospect. So well, I'm, I'm going to trump, trump you. Not that we're being competitive. <laughs> Showing all and our I've books got, off. I've got here. Yeah. <gasps> Where did you get first that First edition. No. You have a first edition. I've got a first. A, the first few pages are missing, hence why I didn't have to remortgage my house. <laughs> but what's amazing is, so she was w- really worried about pirating, was Elizabeth. She signed it. So the way to prove that it wasn't pirated, she signed every book. <gasps> and I'm just talking about it, I get goosebumps. Oh my God. And on the very first page of recipes, there it is. She signed it. Oh, wow. You have her signature. That's just made me goose, no. made me completely goosebumpy. Every time, every time I look at it, I get goosebumps. Oh. I thought it would have worn off by now. Yeah. No, <laughs> that's happened. amazing. So yeah. Oh, I'm yeah, so just that she took. That's her handwriting. She physically touched the book. Yeah, physically touched it. It's odd. It's odd how these things matter, isn't it? Yeah, so <laughs> really important. Do. Oh, that's incredible. Mm. Wow, I'm so envious. And it's well used. It smells of the kitchen. Good as it should. All sorts of stains all over it, which I like. It's got to be a working document, a cookbook. Absolutely, it's got to have stains on it. If it doesn't have stains, it's not a used book. That one, I wonder how many hands that went through apart from hers. Yeah, yeah. The travels it's been on. Yeah, that's incredible. Oh, you lucky duck. Where did you find that? Did you? Was it an auction or a? Uh, there's somebody, uh, she's called Faye Bainbridge. You can Google her. She specialises in. Rare 
cookery books. Wow. Old and rare cookery books. Yeah. yeah. That's where you got it. Yeah, she's very good. She's got loads of great stuff, you know. Too tempting though to I go know. and have a look at her. I don't think I could. I haven't. I, yeah, second mortgage job, isn't it? Half the time, but oh, that's beautiful, wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Now I've got two questions. I always yes. well, I always ask one question to everybody at the end, and that is, what is your Fifty Shades of Food, Neil? But mm -hmm. I'm also going to ask you afterwards as well. And we've got to think about that. What we think Elizabeth's might be. So, first of all, you your Fifty Shades of Food. So, Neil, this is something. A little bit naughty, a little bit sticky. Mm -hmm. You like to eat it on your own in a darkened room. You've lit a fire, you put a bit of music on. I don't know, it could be Barry White. It could be anything, <laughs> whatever you want. Mm -hmm. um, it could be chamber music. <laughs> it could be anything. <laughs> um, but it's something just, uh, you just want to enjoy that moment. It's a very personal experience. What would your Fifty Shades of Food be? Without a doubt, a proper, large... From a patisserie, custard tart. Oh, yes. Yes, with a wobbly custard, or firm. Wobbly, made with egg yolks, made with cream. Yeah. None of that weird overcooking that you, when you buy one from a supermarket, it's got little bubbles in it where they've overcooked it and the pastry's gone all soggy. Yeah. Because they didn't blind bake it. Proper custard tart. Proper blind baked with a, pastry. With a full whole freshly grated nutmeg on top. On top as well. Oh, glorious. And that sounds completely wonderful. So you would just sit down with one of those and just on your own, get it down your front. It doesn't oh, matter. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Really, I mean, I'm quite a greedy person anyway, but yeah, I'll just be inhaling it. <laughs> a few crumbs. Brushing the crumbs off your jumper. That sounds great. Yeah, I just love, it's a, it's a bit of a um, love-hate one, isn't it? Custard and custard tart. Some people absolutely hate it, but for me... Glorious. I mean, yeah, perfect, perfect meal, just a whole custard tart. <laughs> it, would, it would be my final meal, as well as my Fifty Shades. <laughs> Your Fifty Shades is that... It, it's perfect for any occasion, the whole... But what you've chosen as well, what you've chosen as well, is a really, really ancient, old English dish, a custard tart. It's one mm. of the original. You know, I remember one of the... Was it the first... Yeah shoppers they've ever seen had cheese for tarts in it i seem to remember from something i read years ago so it is you know cheese cakes custard tarts they are ancient ancient ancient, yeah, ancient they probably go back to ancient rome everything goes back to rome. ancient rome, everything it? goes it's back not to rome, rome it's china yes exactly what i always <laughs> say to the french i say you do know that most of your food came from the italians don't you i hate that but it's true they were taught it too <laughs> But yeah, you're right. I think it does come back from there. So that's wonderful. So now, Elizabeth. Elizabeth, right, this is back in back in the 18th century. She's got a night off, okay? A little night mm -hmm. off. She's taken off the tight bodice, so she's allowed her, her stomach to just relax. She's sitting there in her chair by the fire. Um, no one is around. What do you think she'd be sitting there and eating? Her 50 shades, something that she just would like to have no one else watching. I think... I mean, I, I guess I've got to choose something from her own book because that's the best way to know <laughs> the <laughs> things that she liked. Um, it's got to be the really big, wobbly sculptures that she made out of jelly yes. and out of flummery. Yes. Because what an amazing amount of fun that is. And I've made some of those and they are fun to make. Yeah. I'm assuming... Because it, it wouldn't just be a chance for her to eat some nice food because... Jelly and I mean flummery's at that time is basically blancmange. Yeah. So jelly and blancmange, it's nice. Yeah. Not just for kids. No, not just for kids. No, it was the centre of the table. Robots. Yeah. The kids were not getting jelly. It was very expensive to give <laughs> them to the kids. 
So I think there's that. And I think because she does work so hard, she doesn't want just some nice, creamy, rich, sweet food. She wants something that is amusing because mm. she's got some rare time off. Yeah, so something amusing. It's not, it has to have a little bit more than just some nice food. You know, something that is really pleasing and sort of, I guess, stimulating, as it were, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's no coincidence that eating jelly was correlated or, or linked to uh, prostitution. Really? Quite a lot of um, brothels sold jelly. That was their cover, oh. really, their front. But as everybody knew, that <laughs> it was just an open secret, really, because Big Wobbly Jellies was a sign... Big wobbly bottom. Exactly. It's not, <laughs> it's not difficult to see the link. No, it's not hard at all. That's great. Hmm. I was looking at the recipes you, um, you've you got in the book here, and um, there was one which... Well, the, the macaroni cheese sounded brilliant for me because cheese is my absolute weakness and downfall, mm -hmm. and I can't get enough of it. And it was just basically macaroni and just double cream and cheese on top, which, parmesan, but they call it parmesan. Yep. Is it? Is it, yeah. it parmesan cheese? Parmesan. Parmesan yeah, it's cheese. the same stuff, yeah. It is yeah, I don't stuff. know why like, the spelling went weird. Yeah, but bit, that was, but... I was looking it up and I was going, oh, it must be parmesan. And the other one was stewed cheese, which is basically... That is delicious. Yeah, that looks de absolutely divine. But it's like a fondue, even like a rarebit type thing on toast, I suppose. Yeah. The same sort of thing, made with ale. Um, but yeah. it's interesting in the book you're saying about all these different... Um, if I the introduction here, because you're talking about how... Everything is, is very different. So, for example, pints were smaller. Mm. Um, so the British pint changed from 16 fluid ounces to 20, as we know now. So if you were having a quarter pint or a gill, that was four fluid ounces as opposed to five. Mm -hmm. Which so I mean, you I, get things wrong. Yeah, and I grew up with gills. <laughs> you know, I grew up with gills and, and pints, not metric at all. So when I was thinking, yeah, it's only five. But yeah, so that's very easy to get it wrong, as you say. Teaspoon. Her teaspoon is actually a dessert spoon, really, wasn't it? Pretty yeah, because we think of teaspoon as, the, you know, if, you, if you're being uh, technical about it, it's exactly five mils yeah. Yeah, if you've got exactly. your proper measuring spoons. Yeah. I mean, things were just not like that then. And the tea, the teaspoon, two words, two separate words, yeah, it was a spoon that you kept in the caddy for spooning out the tea into pots. So it was yeah. quite big. Yeah. It took me ages to work that one out. <laughs> And then eggs were smaller, so poor old chickens didn't have, they were doing little eggs, not big ones that we expect them to mm -hmm. today, which is so cruel. Um, it is cruel, isn't it? Yeah. It is very cruel. And beer Don't and wine. Don't buy your large eggs, folks. Oh yeah, never buy large eggs, always buy medium, always, always, always. Mm -hmm. um, beer and wine tasted much sweeter, so obviously they were very different, so you add a little bit of sugar to them. Um, white flour wasn't white, so you add a little bit of... Uh, um, brown to that which I thought was great mm -hmm. but also just the way they cooked you know everything was very smoky wasn't it we don't in nowadays everything's like all oh, trendy open fire cooking we've gone right back haven't we right back to how we used to cook forget the yeah, ovens exactly. we don't want ovens anymore yeah. do we we just and went... a lot of people because of that reason say oh there's no point trying to recreate these foods at home because it's not going to be authentic because you you're not going to be doing it on a charcoal or wood or coal or whatever you know, fired up range. And I just think those people need to just have a look at themselves because there's so <laughs> much you can learn from doing old um, recipes. Even if you can't do everything, it's techniques on flavour combinations and some of the techniques you can do. And I think you get a lot out of doing it. And I know for a fact that when it came to things like nice, delicate 
jellies and custards and things like that, they didn't want them to taste of wood smoke. And they did. Mm. So if they could have yeah. made these on an electric <laughs> or gas yeah. um, oven or hob, they would absolutely have mm. immediately gone, yes, we need mm. one of those for our patisserie. Yeah, and she would have grabbed one. nice, delicate sauces and custards, because everything just tasted of wood. Of wood, smoke. yeah, on the little chafing dishes. Well, I'll tell you what, she would have embraced it, wouldn't she, hugely. Could you imagine what she would have achieved now? Yeah, it's just nuts. I mean, I, I certainly think that quite a lot, you get recipes where someone says, I don't know, um, boil the quinces for 40 minutes and then push through a sieve. Mm. Have you ever tried to push quinces through a sieve? Not easy. <laughs> It's not easy. Thank goodness I have a Nutribullet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And she used to say, you've got to beat something for an hour and a half. Well, I have cortisone in my shoulder now because I've been beating things for so many years. Can yeah. you imagine how much pain they must have been in having to do all of the beating? And the, I mean, I don't know. It's It was so physical, less physical than medieval times when the men were mainly cooks. You know, the rangers helped with women being able to go into kitchens because pots weren't as heavy, were they? It was it was slightly easier for them. But still physically demanding on them, on their bodies. Huge, hugely physically demanding. So, yes, with no idea. I mean, I obviously reckon to have studied it, and I still know I don't really have a clear idea just at how hard the work was. And in all of those clothes as well. All those layers of skirts. They must have been boiling and uncomfortable. And often set those clothes on fire oh no yeah, dangerous <laughs> yeah that's true really dangerous yeah God, really dangerous work well on that note thank you so much neil it's been oh thanks so, for having me on oh it's been so lovely to uh, to speak to you it really has and um and i will carry on listening to um your podcast because i think it's fantastic and i also will have to read this again cover to cover because it's the sort of book that i could just carry on reading honestly I, it's just brilliant i love it oh thank you and i insist everyone go and buy it and then they can read all about it too Elizabeth, what an absolute star you were. You had great notoriety and standing in Manchester and they still talk about you today. There are so many strong women in our past, but Neil has made sure we don't forget this doyenne of English food and housekeeping. I'm so pleased that she's still in our thoughts and on paper. So go buy Neil's book. It's called Before Mrs Beaton, Elizabeth Raffold, England's Most Influential Housekeeper. It is a triumph. He brings visual context to every page. And I read it in a couple of days. I literally couldn't put it down. Our social history and development of our culinary heritage is incredibly interesting and so important to remember. Mrs Beaton has nothing on Elizabeth Raffold. Next time, we're flying to Northern Ireland, where John and I spent a wonderful few days in May, the highlight of which was the Comba Early's Food Festival. Hear about our trip the famous potatoes and all the other delicious food that is produced in this beautiful country. See you soon. you like listening to our podcast we just love producing it if you think you know someone that would enjoy listening to it too please share and pass on please like and follow us on the platform you listen with we are on instagram truly scrumptious podcast and of course there are our festivals where this podcast stems from bradford on avon food and drink festival and tame food festival website links are on our profile but just google them and you'll find us and buy tickets to visit thanks again for listening